a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Why don't we pray together and uh, ask for God's help as we look at his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that we've sung. Thank you that you're the great God of highest heaven. Thank you that you're the God who calls, who loves, who keeps us. Father, thank you for those truths. And we pray as we turn to your word now that you'd help us to understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to start uh, with three objects. Right, you've got to try and picture these in your head for me. I want you to firstly picture um, a trumpet. So have, a, have the image of a trumpet. Next, I want you to have the image of a mirror. And thirdly, the image of a magnifying glass. Okay, so you need to have those three things, objects, in your head. And then what I need you to do is to put those objects on a shelf over here and leave them there, and we'll come back to them at the end. Okay, so we'll leave those, but that's where we're heading. And it means that you know when I get to the bit about the trumpet, the magnifying glass, and the mirror, you know we're nearly there. If I haven't mentioned them yet, you know we've still got quite a way to go. All right? Just to encourage you along. But we'll leave those things there, and I want to set that up, and you'll see why later on. But here's, here's what I think is very difficult to avoid with this book of Jude. It's tough stuff, isn't it? I mean, these are strong words. 
And I don't want to duck that. I don't want us to kind of try and avoid this and soften it in some way. These are some of the strongest words contained in the Bible. Everlasting chains, blackest darkness, eternal fire. I don't know how you react to that, but my guess is that for most of us, they make us feel quite uncomfortable. We might wonder why Jude would write in such a way. You know, was, when you picture Jude, perhaps he was a bad-tempered sort of guy. You know, short fuse. He liked the kind of a bit aggressive. Was he being harsh? I want to try and show you this afternoon that behind these words, if we could dig deep into the heart of Jude, we would see a man who is passionately, zealously loving towards God's people. He loves them. Far from being harsh and cruel, these are words of emotional love and care. I want you to notice something. Do you see that Jude is not writing to the ungodly people? He's not writing saying, you ungodly people, you're going to be everlasting change, you're going to be in the eternal... He's not saying you, you, you. He talks about these people, these people. He's not writing to them. He's writing to a church. And he, he loves this church and he's worried about these people because of what they'll do to this church. And so he, out of his intense love for the church... He uses this language. Right, let me give you a silly uh, illustration. Okay? I, I, and this, I hope, will help to piece this together. Okay, let's talk about cycling in London. Okay, I, don't know, I don't know if you cycle in London. Cycling in London, um, here's, here's a cyclist. Imagine him. He's called Ricky Ride-Right. Okay, Ricky Ride-Right always does the right thing when he's cycling. He stops at red traffic lights. So even though, right, as, as he's cycling along... He's going quite fast, he's got some momentum, and then the lights go red. Even though it's really annoying, makes life more difficult, he stops. And around him is gathered other people. They're the Ride Right family. There's a whole group of them sitting at the red lights. You, you, know, you often see a big group, the, the Ride Right family, sitting, waiting at a red traffic light. And they look at one another and they think, we're doing right. And they feel quite good about themselves. This is for the best. I know it's slightly irritating, but it keeps us safe. It keeps others safe, and it's the right thing to do. But now look. Down the hill is coming another cyclist. Speeding, really fast, really speedy cyclist. And he's rushing towards the traffic lights. And it becomes very clear that this guy, there's no way he's stopping. And he swerves around the Ride Right family, flies through the red lights, and off he goes. He doesn't belong to the ride-right family. He belongs to the ride-free family. And the ride-free family, when they see a red light, they say, that doesn't apply to me. That red light is only for cars. That doesn't mean to me. And he flies through. And there's a wonderful sense of liberty. And he's like, whoa-hey, as he goes through the lights. And there's a sort of chuckle as he looks at all the ride-right people going, people stopped. <laughs> and off he goes. Now, here's my question. This has got a point. Here's my question. What is the impact of Freddie Ride Free on Ricky Ride Right? Now, that might seem like an irrelevant question, but that's the heart of Jude. What does that cyclist do to this one? Well, there's murmurings in the Ride Right family because they begin to think, why am I bothering to wait here? Because he's just flown through, nothing bad's happened to him. Why, why, why am I bothering? 
This is ridiculous. And I'm late. I've got things to do. And Ricky Ridewright begins to edge forwards towards the red light. And he's about to creep through it. That is why Jude wrote his letter. Because in this church, there are a group of Christians who have started to follow Jesus. They've been called and loved and kept. And they've started to live the new life following Jesus. It's hard, but it's the right life. It's tough to follow Jesus. They say no to stuff that's wrong. They often find themselves at red lights. Things that they'd love to do, but they say, no, that's not right. I can't go that way. I'm a Christian. I've been called and loved and kept. I can't go that way. And they're there trying to live the right life. The ride right family. And then suddenly, along comes someone whooshing down the hill who says, hey, God's full of love and God's full of grace. He doesn't care how you live. God loves us. We're ride free. We're Christians too, but we're free to live however we want. They have a version of Christianity that talks a lot about grace and love and freedom, but never, ever says stop. Never says struggle. Never says no. Never says fight. It's easy. And they come along, and that's what it means in verse 4 when it says they pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. This is what that means. It means that God's grace makes every single light go green. Because God's full of grace, love who you want, do who you want, have who you want, whatever. Everything's green. And as the ride-free family go rushing past, that is deeply unsettling to the ride rides. Why are we bothering? Why are we struggling here as Christians? It's so hard following Jesus. And these people just seem fine. Why am I going through all this struggle? What's the point of fighting? What's the point of struggling in my marriage? What's the point of trying to live the right way? What's the point of fighting for purity? What's the point of trying to be sacrificial and generous and kind? Why am I bothering? That is why Jude is writing his letter. Because he wants to reassure, he wants to say to the church, this is right. And so he says to them, I want you to tell you about the right free people. I want you to see that what looks like freedom is not freedom. And that is why he uses such strong language. Can't you say Obviously he uses strong language. Right? Look, I'm a dad, okay? When I try and tell my kids how to ride their bikes, what do I say? I say, listen, let me tell you about some people who went through red lights. Let me tell you what happened to them. Now, I'm not being, that's not me being harsh and cruel, is it? Not me pointing the finger, nah, nah, nah. It's me saying to my kids, I love you, I want to protect you, I'm going to tell you the truth about what really happened. And I would use graphic language. I wouldn't say, oh, he fell off and he had a little scrape on his knee. In order to make the point, you make the point by using the strongest language. That's what Jude is doing. I hope, you can, I hope this is making some sense to you. He wants the church to be clear. There are red lights. It does matter how you live. There is something that's worth fighting for. And so he does that by demonstrating what riding free looks like.
Now, that's, that's kind of the, the big point of what's happening. That's, what I'm, that's why he uses this language. Right, now I'm going to try and take you through this chunk. It's quite a lot of stuff, okay? I'm going to show you an outline of how this chapter works. <laughs> right, let me, let me explain this, okay? This is, this is how the chapter works, the, the section we read. He gives three Old Testament examples, and then he says, these people are just like that. And then he gives one external or kind of slightly weird example about Moses fight, uh, about the archangel Michael and the devil arguing. Slightly weird. And then he says, these people are like that. Then he gives another three Old Testament examples and says, these people are like that. And then he gives another slightly weird example, Enoch, seventh of Adam, and says, these are the people that Enoch wrote about. Does that make sense? That's the structure, okay? And we're going <laughs> to... We're going to rush through it. There's, there's loads here. Now, he, here's, here's the thing, right? I'm going to go quite fast, and you may not be familiar with some of these stories. And some of them you definitely won't be familiar with because they're not in the Bible. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll explain that when we get to it. Um, but that's not really the point. The point is he's piling up the evidence. The reason he gives so many examples is to feel the weight of it again and again and again. It's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. He wants to pile up the evidence of what he's saying. But here's the main point running through it. If you're taking notes, this is the main point. What he wants them to see is that human defiance will not escape punishment. Human defiance will not escape punishment. And then he heaps up all these examples to prove that that's true. Riding through the red light, saying, stuff you red light, I don't care, will not escape punishment. And we need to be convinced. So he says, look, in verse 5, you already know all this, but I want you to remind you, you have to be convinced of this. We need to be convinced that God does not shrug his shoulders when human beings defiantly ignore him. He doesn't just go, oh, shame. He doesn't smile. He rightly and he severely punishes it. Not because he's harsh and cruel. See, that's what people want to make, isn't it? So, God punishes sin, that makes him harsh and cruel. No, it doesn't. Punishing sin makes him right and just and fair. If he ignored human defiance, he would be a bad king. And his kingdom would be a bad kingdom to live in. But he doesn't. So let's, let's race through these, okay? And I promise we're going to go quite fast. And uh, come on, it's going to be fun. I'm sensing a lot of sleepiness, but we're going to have a lot of... I'm going to have fun. So uh, here we go. Right, let me... I'm going to put the whole thing up. This is the whole of my sermon now, right? There it is. Uh, let me run through this really quickly, right? To show you the defiance. The first example... Uh, is in verse 5. Got it? Have a look at this with me. His first example is this. He talks about Israel, who God rescued out of Egypt. So God's people were in slavery. God did amazing things. He parted the sea. He sent plagues. It was an incredible time. But then, later on, in fact, just a few months later, They refused to believe in him. They wouldn't trust him. 
So he'd given this amazing rescue. He'd given them so much evidence of his power. And then when, they, when he said to them, I want you to go into the promised land, they said, we can't do that. We don't believe you. That is defiant unbelief. They said, it's not, oh, we're really struggling to believe. It's we will not believe. It, there's a defiance in it. And so Jude, that's his first example. When people defiantly did not believe in him, look, he later destroyed those who did not believe. He delivered them out of Egypt and destroyed them. That's pretty shocking language. Defiant unbelief will not escape God's punishment. Okay, let's crack on to the second one. That was, that was Israel refusing to believe. The second one is the angels. Have a look at verse 6. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound at everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now, there are two possible options, what's that, what that's on about. Basically, it's the angels have this amazing privileged position. The angels are part of God's creation. God made the angels to be like his servants. They had a wonderful role of serving and serving. But some of the angels rejected God's authority, refused. Now, it might be referring to Genesis chapter 6, when the angels, it seems that the angels, as they refer to as the sons of God, came and had children with the sons of Adam. The, the kind of, there's a mix of the angels and the humans. It might be referring to that. I think it's more likely to be referring to, to passages like uh, Isaiah 14, where we're told that the angels tried to grab at God's power. It was like they weren't willing to play the part they'd been given. They tried to grab at power. I was in an orchestra when I was a kid, and uh, I played clarinet. But I only ever played second clarinet. Because Carola Guest played first clarinet. And she was better than me. And I hated it. I hated it so much. I, genuinely, I used to look at her... I, 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 used to, I used to play her music sometimes because I was so convinced that I could do it better than her. I hated the fact I was second clarinet. I was grabbing. You know, I, I, if she wasn't there one week, I'd be like, Carol is ill, perhaps she's dead, perhaps she's dead. <laughs> and then next week she'd turn up again. I really hope she doesn't listen to this. Um, I probably should have changed the name for the sake of anonymity. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> Such is life. Lovely girl. You know, really lovely. Just was in my way. Destroying my ambition. And, uh, I, I, you know, that's what's going on here. The angels weren't satisfied. Look, I wasn't... Th- there, was a, there, was, there was a pleb playing third clarinet. Right? Someone down here was playing third clarinet. Right? It wasn't even... I had a privileged position. I was second clarinet. But I wasn't willing to accept the second clarinet status. Here are the angels. They're not willing. They're not willing to accept the second... No. They're not willing to accept their role. They're grabbing for more power-hungry. And look what we're told. The power-hungry... Even the angels. That sort of defiance doesn't escape God's punishment. They're kept in everlasting chains, bound with for the judgment on the great day. There is a great day of judgment coming. Those rebellious angels will not escape punishment. And if they didn't, 
well then, neither will any human defiance. You see how he's building up the argument. We need to keep it going to feel the bang, bang, the relentlessness of this. Here comes the next one. Verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality. Sodom and Gomorrah are notorious in the Old Testament for being places that ignored the red lights that God put. God says, this is the way that you do marriage. This is the way you do sex. Sex is for, ma- is for marriage between one man and one woman. That's the only right place for sex. Sodom and Gomorrah went, red light, Woo-hey! on we go. They said, we're going to do whatever we want. They indulged in all sorts of sexual practice outside of marriage. Homosexual sex, group sex, all kinds of stuff outside of what God had said. They thought that they could ride free. But look at it. They suffer as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. They experience God's punishment. Human defiance cannot, does not, will not escape God's punishment. Again and again, we're given these warnings. Can't you see? But here's a a pastor who loves his people saying, my precious, precious people, I want to warn you in the strongest terms. Those are the first three examples. And then look, then you get that these people, verse 8, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. They do exactly what Sodom and Gomorrah and the defiant angels and rebellious Israel did. You said they're just that's who they are. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled as it looks like they're riding free. As they're coming into the church saying, oh, you're too serious about rules. You're too serious about living that way. Come on, where's your freedom? Jesus, don't be fooled. On the strength of their own dreams, their own proclaimed authority. I've had a dream. They're lies, says Jude. And then we have this break. Uh, to get this odd story um, where he kind of calls an expert witness in. Yeah, Archangel Michael. Let's find out from the Archangel Michael. I've had, we've had three exhibits so far in the case I'm making. Let's have a break. We'll have another three in a minute. Let's have the Archangel Michael come in. Let's see what he has to say. Even the Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. What's what's all that about? Well, this is a story um, that comes from a source outside of the Bible. But that's okay. Lots of things in the Bible come from sources outside of the Bible. But then they're included in the Bible because they're true. Yeah? So we don't have to worry about that. That's fine. Let's dealt with that. So let's have a think about this this story. Um, what is What is happening here? What's happening is that Moses, the great leader, is dead. And Satan, or the devil, is accusing him. That's, the, that's what the devil does all the time. No doubt the devil is saying, Moses shouldn't be allowed to go into heaven because he murdered someone and he didn't trust God. You know, all this kind of stuff. Accusing, accusing. That's what the devil loves to do. He's an accuser, pointing the finger at Moses and saying, you can't allow Moses into heaven. 
here's the thing, right? The Archangel Michael doesn't say, oh, no, hang on, Mr. Devil Man. Let me tell you about all the good things that Moses did. He really should be allowed in. Now, actually, the Archangel Michael knows that it's God's place to judge. The Archangel Michael knows that he doesn't have that off. He knows his place. He's not the judge. It's a red light. You don't cast judgment. That's God's job. But these people, verse 10, they just blunder on. Yeah, it's quite, if they'd been there, they'd be like, oh no, yeah, yes, quite, we know what to do, we know what's best. They haven't got a clue what they're talking about. But they just talk and talk and talk. They speak about stuff they have no clue about. There's no humility. I have the right to call the shots. I decide. I make, I, I, I choose whatever. They're like irrational animals. Doing whatever seems right. You know, if you stop a lion as it's ripping an antelope apart and you say, have you thought about the morality of what you're doing? What would the lion say? It'd just rip you apart. <laughs> I'm a lion, this is what I do. There's this instinct. It just goes with its instinct. And here are these people. That's what we're being told. It's like they're just following their instinct. There's no thought. There's no, there's no humility. There's no reasoning. They're just completely controlled by instinct. That's these people. They think they're better than the Archangel Michael. Yeah, Michael, you didn't know what to do, but we know. <laughs> so he's called in his expert witness, the Archangel Michael. Right, let's crack on. Now we're moving into the next three, okay? Building it up. Next three uh, are, are all in verse 11. You see it? You get Cain. He is um, defiantly angry. You know Cain? I may have said this before, but some of you are new, so it's <laughs> good for you. It's happy. And, uh, you know, Cain was the very first human baby ever born. Right? And so there he is in his cot. And everyone's, well, I mean, not everyone, because there's no one else. <laughs> Adam and Eve are looking at him, going, if only we had like a load of other people we could share him with. But anyway, they're looking at him going, oh, I wonder what he's going to grow up to be. You know, such hopes and dreams. I wonder what our little baby's going to be. What's he going to grow up to be? And he grows up to be a murderer. The first human baby is a murderer. I mean, that tells you something, doesn't it? No wonder we struggle in our world to, to get rid of violence and murder and Rage, because it's built into what we are. And so here's Cain. And remember, Cain had a brother called Abel, and they both offered sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice, God looked on with favour. He wasn't pleased with Cain's sacrifice. I think because Cain didn't offer his with faith. And he says to Cain, Cain, don't get angry. Do what's right, and you'll be accepted. There's a red light saying, don't get angry. Don't go that way. But Cain goes straight through the red light. Goes out, finds his brother, kills his brother in the field. And his brother's dead. Again, you see, just this, this repetition of human defiance. God says, don't get angry. Cain says, shut up. Kills his brother. The next one is Balaam. 
<laughs> you know, this is such a frustrating... I've got to say, right, this is a very frustrating sermon to preach. Because all of these are such good stories that I would love to... I, I could have preached a whole term on Jude just because we could have gone through all of these different examples. It would have been a bit depressing, but we could have, we could have done. But Balaam... Balaam was an enemy of God's people and he was interested in money. He wanted money. That was, that was what drove him. He loved money. And uh, another man called Balak tried to get Balaam. It's all very confusing because they sound quite similar. But Balak was an enemy king. He tried to get Balaam to curse God's people. And Balaam tried but couldn't. And yet he continued and continued. And eventually he led God's people into sexual immorality. And Balaam was obsessed with money. He was defiantly greedy. Even though he saw how much God protected the people, he was defiant. He would not submit to God. Defiant greed. And then you get um, Korah at the end of verse 11. uh, Defiantly rebellious. Korah, right, he goes up to um, Moses. Moses is quite an old man at this point. He looks Moses straight in the face and goes, who do you think you are to be our leader? This is Moses, who'd led them out of Egypt, who'd given them the law, who is a phenomenal leader. And Korah says, I think you've gone too far, Moses. Why shouldn't I be the leader? But to defy Moses is to defy God himself. And the ground opens up and Korah and all his followers are destroyed. Now look, here we come. These people then... Verse 12, you see it? These people are just the same as that. Defiantly greedy, defiantly rebellious, defiantly angry. These people are blemishes at your love feasts. So there they are having a church meal together. I don't, I don't think a love, love feast probably has odd connotations in our culture. Get those out of your head. This is kind of a communion type meal. This is a, 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 a meal together as a church family. And these people are sitting there and yet they're full of hate, not love. Like Cain. They're shepherds who feed only themselves. That's a useless shepherd, right? They're clouds without rain. Now, okay, here's a problem. We love clouds without rain, don't we? Particularly during Wimbledon. It's like clouds without rain. Terrific! It's only going to be cloudy. Right. In, In the context of a very hot country where you are dependent upon the water to make your plants grow, a cloud without rain is a disaster. You know, you see a cloud come in the sky in the morning, you think, oh, it's cloudy. Terrific. You go to work, you think, when I get back, it's going to have watered everything. You come back and there's been no water. You're angry with that cloud. You're like, you wretched cloud. You lied to me. You promised. You promised me water and you, you're a waterless cloud. See? It's a pretty insulting thing to say. You're like a, like a tree without fruit and without roots. <laughs> These are strong, offensive terms. You're twice dead. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. You know when you go to the beach and it's really stormy and there's all that scummy, foamy, scummy stuff? That's you. Not you. That's them. Those people. They're wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Here is the seriousness of what Jude is saying. You have to understand that people who are defiantly greedy, 
who are defiantly angry and rebellious have a horrific fate. Blackest darkness. A picture of aloneness, a picture of no relationship, a picture of no light, no joy, no happiness, no just darkness. It's one of the biggest images the Bible uses for hell. Darkness. Blackest darkness. You know, we need to let that sink. We need to feel the weight of that. Because that's what will keep us safe. As we say, actually, the right free route is wrong. We need to feel it. And I know it's painful, and I know it's hard, and for most of us, we'd rather ignore it. But we need to feel it. God includes it in the Bible because he loves us. And then there's one final expert witness, Enoch. Enoch, seventh from Adam, he's included in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. But this prophecy, again, doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from uh, outside the Bible, from another book. But Jude takes it and says, this is true. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon... Can you picture this? Can you just picture this? I know I've been going for a while, and I know we're sleeping, and we haven't even got the trumpet yet, but we will. We're nearly there. Can you just picture this? The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Human defiance will not escape punishment. However much we kid ourselves, however much the bloke riding through the red light says, I'm not going to get caught, he probably won't. But that same defiance doesn't work. That same attitude doesn't work when it comes to God. We will be called. And these people, verse 16, are grumblers and fault finders. They follow it. It's just all about themselves. It's all about themselves. Have you got the point? I know this is hard. I, you know, I, I didn't approach this sermon with great joy this afternoon. This isn't, this isn't easy. But God warns us because he loves us. I warn my kids because I love them. So here's the, here's the structure of Jude chapter 5, uh, Jude verses 5 to 16. Right, let's go back to the trumpet, okay? Here we go. The trumpet, the mirror, and the magnifying glass. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, I want to suggest it's a trumpet, it's a mirror, and it's a magnifying glass. Let me just, in the last couple of minutes, show you how that's true. And hopefully this will ground it for you, see where we're landing. Firstly, what's the point of a trumpet? Other than to make beautiful music, I mean the the real, the proper point of a trumpet. The proper point of a trumpet is to wake people up, to warn people. To warn people that there's danger. And Jude should come like a trumpet blast into our ears. Saying, don't go through the red light. Don't go there. Don't follow that way. Don't listen to the people who'll tell you that it's fine. And believe me, if you don't like what I'm preaching here this afternoon, okay, this is the problem, right? If you don't like what I'm preaching, you can go and find a hundred churches in London that will tell you what I'm saying is not true. You can go and find a church that will say to you, it doesn't matter. You can go and find a church that will say to you, oh, God doesn't, you know, God doesn't really mind about sexuality. He doesn't really mind about sex. That's kind of... That's old-fashioned. 
God doesn't really mind about homosexuality. That's fine. You can be a Christian and be in a homosexual relationship. That's fine. You can find churches that will say that to you. And Jude is, that's why Jude is writing to us. Because he says there are liars out there and they are lying because it sounds nicer. And I get that. But I want to say to you, will you hear the trumpet? Will you let the trumpet blast wake you up to see the seriousness of what we're talking about? Maybe even for some of us this afternoon, the very reason God has brought you to church is because he wants to blast the trumpet and say, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. It is a trumpet. Watch out for the danger. Watch out for those who you will hear all the time saying, I'm a Christian and I think it's okay to do this. Be careful. But secondly, it's a mirror. And this is the bit I found really challenging this week. Because it's not just a trumpet blaster saying, ah, look at all those nasty people. And we sit in here going, ah, aren't we? We're the good ones. Yeah. Actually, I found this just exposing my heart. Look at that list again. Defiantly unbelieving, power-hungry, pleasure-seeking, angry, greedy, rebellious. Does that describe anything in you? (laughs) Don't you see that that these people, that the seed of that is in all of us? It should cause us to reflect on ourselves. It should cause us to take care, hear the trumpet, to warn us about the danger. But it should be a mirror to make us say, I need to look at that. And maybe one of those, I wonder which one of those particularly is your biggest danger. Will you let the mirror of God's word expose it this afternoon? It's a trumpet, it's a mirror. And finally, and this is the bit I'm excited about, it's a magnifying glass. Because if we understand these words rightly, they will magnify Jesus. They will show us the beauty of Jesus. Because everything that we've just read, everything that these people are, Jesus is not. Jesus is the only man who's ever existed who never had an unbelieving heart. Who never doubted his father. Who never acted in unbelief, but always acted in trusting his Father. Jesus is the man who was never power hungry. He had all power. And what did he do with all power? He took off his outer garment, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he got down on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. Not a hint of power hungry in Jesus. Even going to a cross to die. Doesn't it magnify Jesus? When I see the power-hungry world we live in, as we watch politicians grasping at power, stabbing each other in the back, he's Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? Doesn't it magnify him? Jesus, who never, who never sought out an indulgent pleasure, but was self-controlled. Yes, he enjoyed the world, he enjoyed the good things of this world, but he never was ruled by his pleasures who never became defiantly angry. He, Oh yeah, he did become rightly angry. There is a right place for anger, but, but never defiantly angry. Never selfishly angry. Jesus, who was never greedy, who always was generous. You look at his miracles. How many miracles did Jesus do for his own benefit? He had all the power of the universe. 
And all that he did with it was serve others. Isn't that? Wow. And Jesus, who was never rebellious, but even in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, he said, Father, not what I will, but what you will. Can't you see the beauty? Doesn't it magnify Jesus? Jesus is not like any of these people. That's why you must trust him. That's why we need him. Because he's the only one who will teach us to ride right. He's the only one who will teach us the right way to live. So this afternoon, um, it's, that, that's been a mammoth kind of trog through a lot of stuff. I realize that. And you won't remember hardly any of those things. I hope you remember this. I hope you remember that human defiance will be punished. But Jesus is magnificent. And you will trust him. And that where we see these seeds in our hearts, only Jesus can forgive us and only Jesus can keep us. We're called, loved and kept by him. And we need to trust him. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we've read really um, very strong, very sobering words. And Father, we confess how often we're tempted just to defiantly ignore what you say and to go our own way, presuming that we'll be fine, presuming that we won't suffer any consequences. Lord, thank you that your word contains many, many warnings. And Father, we pray that we'd hear this trumpet, that we'd look in this mirror, but that most of all we'd gaze through the magnifying glass to see Jesus. Our Father, please magnify Jesus in our hearts, we pray. Amen.